Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's a great pleasure to speak uh, in this audience, and um, um, I'm grateful to the New York University of Abu Dhabi for bringing me here. My first time, actually, on the, uh, uh, on the Persian Gulf. Uh, fascinating to, to see what's, what's been built here, what's been created here. Um, however, I will speak about what was destroyed. And this is the most difficult project, actually, in my whole career, because I lived through it. Uh, that was one of seminal events in my own life, in my own intellectual uh, career. And uh, one can say uh, very briefly about the Soviet Union. It was destroyed and then deserved it. However, as I uh, lived uh, for years and years after the end of the Soviet Union, its end became more and more uh, appeared to me as a historical problem and, uh, that needs uh, historization. So my lecture will be about the strangeness of this story of Soviet collapse, as well as the role of uh, political actors. Of course, I will mention causes, causes that is uh, usually in every, uh, every uh, article and book about the end of the Soviet Union or any book about Soviet history. Um, there were deeply flawed uh, Soviet economy, the rise of uh, nationalism, um, the search for independence among various Soviet republics, demise of communist ideology and geopolitical retreat uh, associated with the end of the Cold War. And if you take it all together, what else? You know, it's more than enough to explain the end of the Soviet Union. Yet, I would argue that all these factors, even taken together, cannot explain the story of utter failure of Soviet state, Soviet state capacities, the suddenness and depth of Soviet economic crisis, and total victory, total absolute victory of national separatism and anti-systemic opposition. During just shocking period of time, in 1991, you know, short, uh, shortly less than three, three years, so all these developments see, seemed stunning to us living in the Soviet Union at the time. We experienced different feelings from despair to joy, depending on our political and ideological preferences. But even today, uh, this event uh, evokes um, many questions uh, that cannot be fully answered. Enough to say that before uh, 1989, the Soviet, an idea of Soviet collapse was something that was deemed completely unthinkable. And after 1991, practically everyone declared that it was inevitable. So this kind of uh, epistemological leap is strange in itself. We deal here with a problem that uh, Sir Isaiah Berlin, a very important British uh, cultural and intellectual historian called an implicit teleology that we uh, have in writing about history and thinking about history. It, it means that what happened uh, assumes a status of something predetermined, something that in, in, this, in the case of the Soviet collapse, I mentioned the word inevitable. One of the authors, Mark Basinger, a political scientist from Princeton University, um, enumerated at the uh, beginning of his excellent book about the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, a number of those teleologists, teleological beliefs. Um, some scholars assume that political liberalization and radical reforms were the only exits from the Soviet past, from the Soviet totalitarian or post-totalitarian post systems. Uh, some, most of course, believe that the Soviet Union was an empire, some even called it an evil empire, and accordingly was doomed. Some of these people even emulate the end of the empire thesis by Francis Fukuyama. Basinger himself rejects those teleologies, yet himself doubles, dabbles in the, with the issue of inevitability, except he bases it uh, on, on on the concept of tidal waves 
of nationalism that came initially from the Soviet borderlands, the Baltic states, the Baltic republics, and other ethnic borderlands such as Southern Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan. So those tied, that, that title effect grew and finally reached the heartland, the heartland of the empire or the state, the Russian Federation. I argue that the only way to understand the strange story of Soviet collapse was to look at Soviet structural problems, but also look beyond them, uh, look at agency, look at contingency. My conclusion is, is that the structural flaws of the Soviet Union were deep. They made Soviet state and economy exceptionally vulnerable to change. But it was that change, it was specific reforms undertaken by the leader of the Soviet Union, by Mikhail Gorbachev, General Secretary of the Communist Party, the, uh, the reforms meant to heal the patient. Those reforms instead killed the patient. In my previous book, I considered uh, Mikhail Gorbachev a fateful personality. The leader of the Soviet Union that, to put it um, somewhat simplistically, used the Stalin-like power, the power of his leadership, the leadership of the Communist Party, the only party in the country. And he used that power and that leadership to dismantle the system that supported him, that brought him to power. Kind of a unique occurrence, almost unique occurrence in world history. Nothing is totally unique, of course. Above all, Gorbachev, inconceivably for many people, uh, including some of his closest associates, removed the Communist Party from the levers of economic and political governance. And by doing so, he fulfilled the old prophecy made by George Kennan, who may or may not be familiar for some of you in the audience, the author of the containment doctrine. George Kennan uh, wrote famously in the 1950s, if anything were to ever to occur, to disrupt the unity and efficacy of the party as a political instrument. He meant the Soviet Communist Party. Soviet Russia might be changed overnight from one of the strongest to one of the weakest and most pitiable of national societies. And this is exactly what happened. In my uh, book, A Failed Empire, focused on the main features of Gorbachev's personality and leadership, such as his Westernism, ideological naivete, ad hoc approach to issues, inability for sustainable strategy, and principled aversion to the use of force. All of these features are kind of unusual for the leader of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Yet, as we know, Gorbachev never really wanted, when he came to office, to undermine the Soviet system. He wanted to strengthen it. So the main paradox of the Soviet collapse is rooted in the interaction between his leadership and the choices that he made. That those choices destabilized the Soviet system economically and politically. Gorbachev made those choices without considering the consequences. Yet, when those consequences became apparent, he refused to correct uh, the choices that he made. And then it became too late. So, I would focus on these choices. The first choice was to sanction economic reforms. He came to power in 1985. In 1987, early 1987, he sanctioned a number of far-reaching economic reforms that are um, relatively little known in, in, in the West. Uh, in the West, they talked about perestroika, glasnost, you know, but not about this. These reforms, instead of economic growth that he wanted to achieve, triggered macroeconomic destabilization quite rapidly and loss of control over the Soviet economy. So, in January 1987, he launched reforms prepared by teams of Soviet economists that aimed at radical decentralization of the Soviet economy. I should remind you that the Soviet economy was utterly centralized. It was managed, almost micromanaged, by the Communist Party at all levels and by giant bureaucracy um, with the center in Moscow. So the idea was to decentralize the system and give uh, a lot of autonomy 
to the main units of the Soviet economy, which were state enterprises. There, everything called, was called state enterprises, from giant steel mill to refinery to, I don't know, barbershop, grocery store. Everything was considered state enterprises. But the economy was highly monopolized, and so giant steel mills, for instance, in the Urals and somewhere else produced, uh, produced steel for the whole country and for export. Refineries uh, concentrated in several places, of course, but, you know, did that for oil and so on and so forth. So the economy was highly centralized. Um, the state enterprises, for the first time since before Stalin, before Stalin created the whole Soviet system, those state enterprises were allowed to uh, have a, a significant percentage of profits instead of sending all profits up to the state budget. Those, those units, those state enterprises were allowed, again, for the first time since the 1920s, to sell their production abroad. The state abrogated their monopoly on external trade, and so on and so forth. That was short of revolutionary. And on top of everything, the enterprises could now have directors elected by the collectives of workers uh, and therefore independent from those party officials who sat on local or uh, Republican and on all union levels controlling them. Now they were autonomous. They were elected officials and they could appropriate some of the profits the paradox of the situation was that those were still state enterprises. So the state remained the owner of those enterprises. But the state, according, you know, by Gorbachev's fight, by Gorbachev's decree, voluntarily relinquished controls over the functioning of those economic enterprises and over a considerable part of profits of those enterprises to the working collectives, you know. It's impossible to understand the, uh, the generosity of that act without the previous intellectual, cultural, and political history of the Soviet Union, because Gorbachev was not just a new leader. He represented the new uh, uh, ethos, a new political culture of the people of the 60s who dreamed of freeing the system from Stalinism, from Stalinist totalitarianism, from the firm grip of the party state. So the idea of decentralization, the idea of giving freedom, the idea of giving workers and those who know how to, how to deal with economy, their voice and autonomy was in the air since the 1960s, and Gorbachev imbibed it since that time. He implemented, in a sense, the agenda of his generation. The result, however, was slightly different from what he expected. By the way, many believe that Gorbachev did those reforms because there was already economic crisis in the Soviet Union when he came to power. Nothing supports this view. There was no crisis. Yes, it was one of the most wasteful, perhaps, economies in the world. It was sluggish. It didn't deliver enough goods and services to Soviet people. But according to the minimalist uh, uh, estimates, there was social contract between the workers and the employers, between all groups of the society and the state, by, by keeping certain, again, very minimalist uh, living standards, guaranteed from cradle to grave. So there was no state of crisis. There was some uneasiness about what to do next. There was realization that the old system exhausted its potential for growth, but exhausting potential for growth does not mean an economic crisis. It means what should we do next? Another view suggests that Gorbachev was forced by Reagan, by uh, you know the Cold War to uh, to quit the arms race. The arms race was unbearable, unsustainable. Again, not supported by the archives and by real statistics uh, because the real burden was huge, but it was not super huge. It was not crushingly huge for the Soviet economy. Um, again, uh, it's a long story and I don't have time to go into the re this, but you know, the state, uh, the state spent up to 15% of the state budget on defense-related things, but not 30, not 35, not 50 or 55. So it was quite sustainable. Somebody asked me about Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Afghanistan war was cul-de-sac, it was a deadlock, it didn't, didn't go anywhere. 
it had to be finished somehow without losing face. Yet again, you'd never find any evidence in the Soviet archives anywhere that it was uh, a trigger to um, economic reforms that Gorbachev carried out. As I said, it was a fulfillment of his personal and generational dream. So instead, I said, you know, the, the consequences of that were paradoxical and largely negative. Instead of uh, allowing the potential of workers, as of course, naive socialist uh, theory may have informed Gorbachev, uh, to, to, to work harder, more, get parts of the pros, uh, profits, and work even more, supply more goods to the market. In fact, what happened was quite something quite opposite. Uh, it's enough to compare what happened at the time in the Soviet Union and what happened in China, where Deng Xiaoping had started reforms in 1979. Uh, the Chinese reforms produced a fast-growing economy, above all in agriculture, and then in the cities in the south that everybody knows. And that growth was fundamental, it filled the shelves. Uh, China quickly passed from complete lack of goods to plenty of goods on the shelves. It was what one uh, historian, economic historian of China called growing out of plan. In the Soviet Union, Gorbachev created something opposite. He inserted the elements into the existing centralized economy that began to atomize that economy, um, destroyed the old system of controls and checks without creating the new one, lifted checks on the existing elites without creating different market checks and regulations on them. Um, so, it just allowed states, uh, state servants, which were, for instance, factory directors and those related to, to them, to become profiteers within the state economy. The process that gradually began to hollow out Soviet fiscal and economic system from within without creating any new productive capacities or actually market relations. So, in 1988, instead of uh, uh, turning back, or at least checking what is happening, Gorbachev demanded that the whole process of decentralization would be spread to all sectors of the economy. In fact, the documents say that Gorbachev was an arch fan of the, the, that type of reform, demanding to accelerate it, to move on with it, and in 88 created so-called cooperatives, which turned out to be actually the first private firms and even first private commercial banks that were, uh, again, designed to move the country towards market economy. Instead of doing it, they were, became attached uh, tools to the state enterprises, helping them to take profits, turning them into cash, and channeling that cash abroad. That was the hemorrhage in the Soviet economy that Gorbachev himself created. It was the beginning of what later became economy of stolen assets, deeply corrupt, without a clear sense of property rights, with intention to steal and send profits to offshore places, something that we associate normally with the post-Soviet Russia. But actually, the it began in 1988 as the first cohort of people called Russian millionaires and Russian billionaires appeared in London uh, in 1988-89. So, um, in fact, in defense of those people, I would say they acted as rational economic actors. They reacted to the new structures and opportunities created by the party state for them, which were perfect to take advantage of double system of prices, state, pr state fixed prices and market prices, and pocketing the difference. It happened in China as well during the early Deng Xiaoping reforms, but the party state remained in control and used state mechanisms and also party mechanisms to crack on those profiteers and fight corruption. Um, in the Soviet Union, uh, it, did not, it did not happen. Already in 1988, discontent began to grow in the Soviet Union. On both sides, the party uh, officials, the party nomenclatura, and Soviet consumers 
party officials saw the growing, uh, growing uh, uh, chaos, growing disruption of the existing economy, the existing economic systems, and they were quite unhappy with that, but also equally unhappy with Soviet consumers because instead of the promised, uh, uh, promised abundance of goods, cooperatives and independent autonomous state enterprises actually uh, swept the uh, swept the, uh, the existing number of goods. Instead of producing cheaper goods for consumers, they focused on those uh, those goods that could be immediately exported and and earn profits for them. But the popular discontent was a dangerous thing. It was focusing, of course, on the ruling Communist Party and Gorbachev personally. And then comes the time for the second choice of, of uh, Gorbachev. At this juncture, he and a small group of liberal-minded apparatchiks, sometimes I use the expression enlightened apparatchiks, those who were, you know, better educated, who were westernizers, who realized the old Soviet economy needed to be changed, they opted for political liberalization. They acted on the belief that the existence of system built by Stalin in the 1930s and uh, kind of finalized after the Second World War, this system, this system of uh, nomenclatura, party state, is the greatest obstacle to continuation of economic reforms. Again, like with the first choice of economic reforms, the second choice of political liberalization was mightily influenced by, uh, by Gorbachev's generational uh, and personal experience, his optics, so to say. Along with many, he was not alone by no means, but with many liberal-minded technocrats and intelligentsia, primarily living in, in two cities, Moscow and Leningrad, two largest Russian cities, um, he concluded that one needs to remove the party from the management of economy. The whole idea of uh, removing the party apparatchiks from economy and replacing them with technocrats again originated in the optimistic 60s. Uh, what happened in se September 1988, Gorbachev passed a decree abolishing uh, several key uh, central uh, committee, party central committee uh, departments that served as, as sort of the central central coordinating mechanisms in the in economic system. It's like removing a central plate for the computer all of a, from a computer all of a sudden, hope, hoping that something else would come and replace it instead. Kind of stunning. At the time, however, many people, including myself, much younger, uh, applauded that decision as absolutely inevitable, the word inevitable, that's the road towards democratization and the road to, uh, the, ro the only road that, of course, uh, should be taken. By the way, it should be said that by, the, by that time, the party that Gorbachev was removing from the economy was very different from the party that he inherited from the previous leaders, such as Leonid Brezhnev, for instance. In 1886-89, practically 100% of old party leaders on all levels had been removed and replaced by new, allegedly younger and more progressive party leaders. It was those new party uh, men and party women that became so disillusioned with both choices of Gorbachev, particularly with his choice of political liberalization. Indeed, he proposed an impossibly bad deal to the party elite. He wanted the party now to focus on political matters of some kind, become a real political party in a naive belief, probably neo-Leninist, he at the time read and relayed read Lenin regularly, even later actually. Lenin was his favorite, favorite reading. Um, to return to the roots, so to say, revolutionary roots, to become a real party in mass politics. 
It's quite impossible after so many decades of dictatorial rule when party was indeed, uh, the, as one economist said about the party, the party was really bad, but the best function that it had was in management of the economy. That, that was probably the, 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 the only, the most useful thing that the party did at the time, within the existing system, of course. So, while returning party to mass politics and winning people's hearts after those 70 years of terror, war, oppression was quite impossible, uh, I use the word naive, but maybe other, word, other words can be found to describe that. Um, what the party people also saw that Gorbachev was removing them at the same time from what was becoming the greatest uh, uh, and lucrative heist in, in Soviet Russian history, when the state property was now up for grabs. It was up for not, not yet privatization de jure, but de, fa de facto, the, the, uh, the relinquishing of state control over huge assets of the Soviet economy. And they were deliberately removed from that. Compare it to China, where Deng Xiaoping did it through the party and through the party elite. I would mention, uh, 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 would uh, return to this subject later on. So it's not surprising, it's not surprising that in 1988-89, the party uh, leadership of, at all levels began to detest and later hate Gorbachev instead of irritation at the first uh, reforms that they could not understand and consider as non-effective, they uh, felt increasingly alienated and antagonized from their general secretary, and that feeling was quite mutual. Another surprising choice of Gorbachev in 88-89 was to allow Republican leadership and separate republics to gradually assume more responsibility over economy and economic assets on their territory. should be reminded that the Soviet Union was formally, con constitutionally, a federation with some elements of confederation that existed as a unitary state only because of several factors above all, one party rule, of course, you know, the iron rule by one party, but also economic and fiscal and financial centralization. That held the country together, but constitutionally it was federation, that, thus it was really vulnerable uh, during the times of this, uh, the, the destabilization. So Gorbachev, however, viewed uh, the republics and the rising national discontent in the republics uh, as, as something he could preempt and preempt, prevent with further political liberalization, with more uh, uh, concessions, I would say, from the center. And he did, he made those concessions. It, as it turned out, it was like pouring fuel on the sea of oil instead of water and set it on fire. In 1989, as uh, we, uh, some of us remember, Gorbachev and his group of uh, reformers uh, vested constitutional power in the new institutions. Um, the party was no longer the leading force in that new, uh, that new uh, setup. The Congress of People's Deputies, Gorbachev said Lenin wanted it, and the permanent chamber uh, elected on the basis of this Congress called the Supreme Soviet. Gorbachev deliberately did it to weaken the party state and use television, allowed to use television to bring, you know, legitimacy, popular legitimacy, mass public support to those new, new institutions. Uh, many liberal freedoms, uh, including free elections, elected legislative assemblies, freedom of speech, religion, were instituted at the time. So the Soviet uh, the Soviets, the new uh, representative bodies consisting of, of thousands of people began, began busy restoring, restoring allegedly, because the myth was that it was restoration of what was the Soviet state originally under Lenin. Myth because the Soviets never had any power, the party had any power, but the myth was used to uh, empower the Soviets and all those new elites elected, duly elected, uh, became extremely hectic and busy uh, looking how they can uh, uh, get more resources and more control over resources under, under their control. 
Contrary to the prevalent view, Gorbachev was not under pressure of nationalism to do uh, all these reforms. Yes, there was some turmoil in the Baltics. Yes, there were first ethnic, inter-ethnic conflicts in Southern Caucasus. But Gorbachev was not yet in the position when he was forced by uh, some uh, forces of mass nationalism and politics to do something. He did it again on his own. Uh, believing it that it would uh, he would be able in remarkable uh, remarkable display of optimism belief he, he would be able to play the role of a new Lenin he would be able the ride to ride the crest of mass politics that he himself unleashed and institutionalized in doing all this Gorbachev was acting as a de facto an ally of all rising nationalist movements in non-Russian republics on the borderlands from the Baltics to, to Georgia and others, and those liberal-minded intellectuals, um, mostly in Moscow and Leningrad, they demand, that demanded political liberalization. But at the same time, he acted against the only class that really supported him, the, the communist nomenclatura. Moreover, in March 1990, Gorbachev forced the party to, change, uh, to agree to the change of the Soviet constitution, to abolish the clause that made the party constitutionally the leading force of the society. It was changed, uh, voted, uh, this change was voted by the party delegates themselves under Gorbachev pressure, with liberal minority supporting it, but conservative majority really doing it under uh, the, uh, you know, hypnotizing influence of general secretary. So back to my thesis, Gorbachev was using Stalin-like power, Stalin-like charisma, if you like, to force the party to commit political suicide. Again, back to the comparison between the Soviet Union and China at that time. In China, the contradictions inherent in the, in the, in the transition to market economy from the sort of primitive, uh, a primitive communist centralized economy created a lot of social pressures that, of course, we know culminated in famous, uh, uh, famous demonstrations of students in Beijing. So Deng Xiaoping, again, quite notoriously resolved this serious political crisis in China by the show of force, suppression of the opposition, by his outward support of the army and the security services. After the Tiananmen crisis, then Xiaoping uh, suppressed the critics of economic reform. He didn't want to turn China back to the old system. Instead, he argued that we must accelerate the movement towards new market-based system, but under control of the party and in a greater reliance on the party nomenclatura. As he said to one, uh, one other, another elder in the Chinese leadership, we can count only on our own. He meant so-called red families of people from the Chinese communist nomenclatura. Gorbachev accidentally was in Beijing and saw that uh, demonstration of students. Uh, it was, you know, uh, connected to the Sino-Soviet summit, the summit of reconciliation. He interpreted Chinese political troubles as confirmation of the correctness of his own course towards decentralization, devolution of the party state, and political liberalization. His closest advisor, Alexander Yakovlev, his ideologue, said uh, privately to him that the student process, protest in China was part of the worldwide trend towards democratization. Gorbachev agreed. For him, the turmoil in Beijing must have corroborated his long-held views that Dan's reforms, Chinese reforms, were bound to create political tension and, politi and, 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 um, and liberalization. Political liberalization was the only way to resolve them without spilling blood. According to one witness, a historian, by the way, he said to his entourage on May 15th, 1989, inside the Soviet embassy in Beijing, watching the crowds chanting, Gorby, Gorby, down with them. He said, some of these present here have promoted the idea of taking the Chinese road for our reforms. We saw today where this road leads. I do not want the Red Square to look like Tiananmen Square. Again, his 
uh, principled aversion to the use of force uh, is, is here, but also his illusion that the road that he took leads to um, smooth, peaceful evolution of the Soviet Union. He certainly refused to accept what was already patently clear even to some of uh, his, uh, his advisors and not to mention critics that he put the, the Soviet Union on, on, on a slippery slope towards dissolution and self-destruction. So, to repeat my main thesis, I do believe that the collapse of old institutional capacities and hierarchies uh, inst uh, engineered by Gorbachev in a, uh, in a very small period of time were much more important in the story of Soviet dissolution than the much better known rise of national liberation movements from below. I agree with one author, Stephen Solnik, who wrote that hierarchical breakdown was not a consequence of some broader collapse of the Soviet system, but rather the systemic collapse itself. I do not agree with the conclusion of Mark Basinger, the author, the author of the book about nationalist tide, whom I already mentioned. He writes, the coercive capacity of Soviet institutions of order was undermined by the multiple waves of nationalist revolt and inter-ethnic violence. I disagree. I would rather say it was Gorbachev's decision not to use force systematically during those conflicts that undermined the faith in state capacity. Dan supported the military. He was bloody Dan. He set it out. He set it out American sanctions. He returned China to reforms. He brought American investments. He relied on the army and the party. Instead, Gorbachev uh, let his army down. Uh, during the events of 88 and 89, um, he repeatedly made the military who were involved in uh, stopping ethnic violence or in suppression and some demonstrations most notoriously in Georgia, for instance, in 89 and later in Azerbaijan and other places uh, uh, in the borderlands of the Soviet Union, he made the military escape goat, always dis dis denying his responsibility or even knowledge. I never authorized the use of force, he said. Uh, so instead of siding with the military, he became a person whom the military considered the main culprit of their disgrace. And of course, the alienation between the commander in chief and its army uh, grew significantly. He squandered in 1990 much of his political authority and was opposed from several sides. The disgruntled majority of the people who couldn't find any goods in the stores anymore and were aggrieved by rapidly worsening economic conditions. He was opposed by conservative reformers from the nomenclatura, from the party. And he also was opposed by radical liberal reformers from the opposition. Finally, there was the enemy, uh, in the borderlands, nationalist opposition. That opposition was uh, not going to compromise with Gorbachev. And in the case of the Baltics, declared quite early that they wanted to secede from the Soviet Union without any terms or conditions. Emboldened by the weakening of state controls, Glasnost, um, a vital anti-systemic force appeared in Moscow, the capital of the Soviet Union. The people, uh, these people, a coalition of intelligentsia, technocratic middle class, marched in the streets of Moscow, I was among them at the time, under the banners of anti-Stalinism and neo-Leninism. Uh, as happens often in Russia, starting with, uh, you know, socialism with a human face, the opposition quickly, remarkably quickly, radicalized and began to demand the end of the communist rule, complete freedom for nationalities, full array of freedoms overall, and ultimately turned against Gorbachev himself and sided with his radical and popu popular, populist uh, enemy, Boris Yeltsin. The new goal of the opposition was not back to Lenin. Lenin was now buried together with Stalin as, you know, a world criminal. It was now down with totalitarian state. As it turned out, this slogan meant that the existing state in all its totality, without really thinking of what would come to replace it. In June 1990, political liberalization, again, unleashed by Gorbachev, and growth of anti-systemic discontent led to a, a really paradoxical event. Paradoxical event 
most of all to the Western observers who could understand Russia, the largest republic of the Soviet Union, the central, the, the spinal cord, the mainstay of the Union, rebelled against the, Union, the Soviet Union. It was not Lithuania that was, after all, uh, tiny and close to, to Poland out there that was so threatening to the Soviet Union. Lithuania declared its willingness to secede in uh, November 1989, at the same time, basically, when the Berlin Wall fell in Eastern Europe. It was not Lithuania, however, that uh, uh, was so threatening. It was Russian Federation, when, in June 1990, it proclaimed its sovereignty. Contrary to all expectations of Gorbachev's, Almost Gorbachev and his people, who believe that Russians are for the country. They are the mainstay. They always support the unity of the country. All of a sudden, almost all delegates of the newly elected Congress of People's Deputies, another innovation introduced by Gorbachev into the Constitution, uh, they voted for sovereignty of Russia. What did it mean? Most of the delegates, when asked, they couldn't explain it right away. But what is shocking, not only so-called liberal-minded people, not so-called liberal intelligentsia dissidents, uh, anti-communists voted for that sovereignty. They constituted only 12 to 13% of the de delegates. Almost everyone voted for it. And in the assembly, you could find many conservatives and even many KGB officials who were allowed to run and they actually ran in uniform and got elected into this assembly as KGB officials. So even they voted for Russian sovereignty. What a strange phenomenon. One can only explain this phenomenon by looking at the previous record that we touched upon. Gorbachev alienated and antagonized by his reforms both those conservatives who wanted to preserve the centralized state uh, and those who wanted to take part in market reforms and self-enrichment. He uh, antagonized both the army, uh, which he, he led down in ethnic conflicts, and security services that saw with dismay the loss of governability and the loss of order. Both idealists and pragmatists, cynics and careerists, united in distancing from Gorbachev and created another locus of power in the country. It was a fatal dual power that emerged in Russia for the first time since the revolution of 1917. The Russians wanted, so-called Russians within the Russian Federation, wanted economic resources, they wanted their own banks, they wanted taxes, they wanted everything on their territory to be Russian. The center, represented by Gorbachev and the central bureaucracies, of course, resisted. It was a suicidal struggle that took place in the same city around the Kremlin. So it was the moment when some knowledgeable observers for the first time began to think about the fate of the Soviet Union. What indeed would happen if the la its largest republic would declare independence and blow the empire up from within. So we see that by that time in June, July 1990, Gorbachev to a certain extent already was on the way of becoming the general without the army, the general secretary without the party, and, uh, the, uh, and the uh, top leader without the state and the centralized economy. The biggest surprise of the Soviet endgame that really starts at the time and lasted amazingly long, actually, from June, July 1919 to August 1991 for a whole year when um, in August 1991, a botched coup by so-called hardliners, that is, people whom Gorbachev considered the most trustworthy, they were people, those were people in his own government, they turned against him and tried to introduce the emergency rule, an already collapsing country. So until that time, um, Gorbachev was trying to mediate between all the sides and increasingly becoming irrelevant to, uh, to, 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 to any side of the conflict. The biggest surprise of that endgame is inability and um, actually sometimes a fatal, uh, a fatal incapacity of so-called conservatives 
taking all those party leaders, bureaucrats, KGB, uh, the military, to present, to form a conservative alternative to anti-communist uh, opposition of Yeltsin and to national opposition in, in the republics. There was a lot of support, meanwhile, for an authoritarian economic reform, a reform based on uh, something that would be imposed on the reluctant uh, society. Uh, that was uh, the view of many economists, including the future architects of Russian shock therapy, such as Igor Gaidar. For them, the real choice was not really the struggle between totalitarianism and democracy. They supported uh, democratic-minded people in Moscow, but they knew that the real economic reforms can only, could, could only succeed if they're supported by enormous state capacity. Their real model was the model of Augusto Pinochet reforms in, in uh, Chile. A strong authoritarian hand that would force unpleasant economic choices on the people, break the deadlock of Soviet-style trade unions, allow rampant privatization of nationalized assets, and so on and so forth. Such a man, as we're thinking in macho terms, uh, could uh, help the prevent the country from complete disintegration. Uh, so... When I mentioned the coup, it was one of the uh, causes, by no means uh, uh, the, the first, uh, but you know, the second probably uh, cause for the failure of the August coup in 1991, when Gorbachev was helpless, he was under house arrest in Crimea, and his ministers basically declared the emergency rule, having at their disposal the entire army and security services, um, they did not have any economic problem. A program to transform the country. They failed to tell the country right away what, what reforms they were going to do. It was a fateful mistake. Igor Gaidar, who would later become a shock therapy author for the Yeltsin administration, uh, wrote down at that time, they are not a collective Pinochet. They are doomed. So he turned to Boris Yeltsin, who in his estimation could become a strong man that could lead uh, the, uh, the country uh, out of that uh, economic malaise and crisis towards bright market future. If I have a few minutes, uh, I would try to finish my talk with a few observations about international factors and the collapse. You know, here's an international audience and New York University is, of course, a highly international place. So it's impossible, again, to, uh, to end, finish the talk without mentioning this. There's, an, uh, of course, there are two opposite and equally wrong views. One is a conspiratorial view that many people now hold in Russia, that uh, somehow the CIA in the United States, whatever, State Department played a vital role in destabilizing and destroying the Soviet Union. I have no comment on this view. It's pure conspiracy theory. There's an opposite view, however, equally wrong, and it, take, it has the imprint of uh, serious academic um, respectability that the United States and the West uh, did not play any role in the Soviet co collapse. So one historian uh, that, that focuses on 1991 uh, concludes that the Bush administration, Bush senior administration, supported Gorbachev against the republics until August 1991, and uh, he famously gave a speech in Kiev, uh, you know, Chicken Kiev speech on August 1st, 1991, discouraging Ukrainian independence. So by all means, you know, the United States rather supported uh, than, than, than helped to destroy the Soviet Union, con uh, concludes the, this author. However, I would argue that American and Western policy at the time had many levels and uh, were much more uh, nuanced than uh, you, you understand at first sight. On the official level, when you read documents, the White House policy, the Bush administration policy, was indeed quite cautious. Bush and his close friend and advisor, Brent Scowcroft, concluded that the USSR was too big and volatile, but they also thought, maybe, using American metaphor, the USSR was too big to fail. This, however, does not mean that the United States policy was neutral. During the last and critical year of the Soviet 
uh, Union's existence. Uh, when Gorbachev still was a nominal leader of the Soviet Union, uh, Gorbachev, uh, the Bush administration consistently fought against any plans of massive Western financial and technical assistance to the USSR. The terms used at the time, the Marshall Plan for the USSR, or Grand Bargain. Uh, there, of course, were domestic reasons for the USSR, uh, for the for for the American taxpayers not to shell out m a huge amount of money to the sinking Soviet economy. That this is not all. The United States not only uh, refused to to pay uh, for, for for to pay to save Soviet economy, but objected and blocked attempts of other countries in the West, such as Germany, uh, Britain, France, and Italy, to create a program that could be resembling of the Marshall Plan. Just imagine, of course, the Soviet economy was dysfunctional at the time, but such a plan could have given Gorbachev the, the rope. Uh, it could have uh, given him a reason to for the central uh, for the central authority to exist, if only as a recipient of massive Western aid and distributor of that aid to the national republics. So it would have given time for Gorbachev maybe to uh, to uh, institute a more a more gradual change towards uh, a federation or confederation that he planned to do with the republics at the time. American influence on Soviet reforms of course, uh, was supported by immense American soft power. It's almost uh, unreal for me today to remember how huge, overwhelming was American influence on all of us uh, 27, 28 years ago. In fact, I'm not talking about the KGB, I'm not talking maybe about segments of the army and conservative parts of the bureaucracy, but Many Soviet officials, all national leaders in all republics, and the entire anti-systemic opposition in Moscow, Angered, and so on, looked up to Washington above all for this for leadership, support, encouragement, and so on and so forth. So it was truly the, the Soviet Union was truly trying to invite the United States, invite American experts to help them. Uh, the uh, uh, to 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 uh, uh, overcome crisis. Those people who uh, conflate the end of the Cold War, the Cold War, and the Soviet collapse, they don't really remember what was happening. Americans were loved in Moscow. They were kissed, embraced in the streets of Moscow, considered to be the closest allies of Russia and Russian uh, Russian democracy and Russian people. So with that immense power, Amer uh, Americans were able to influence uh, the Soviet end game in a number of ways, in a subtle way. Um, first of all, Jim Baker, state secretary, who often uh, negotiated with Gorbachev, uh, when they dealt with arms control and other obligatory issues, they began to talk. And the talk was usually how to do Soviet economic and political reform. So you find many times uh, Baker liberally passed advice, his personal uh, American advice on how the Soviets should reform the Soviet Union and what Gorbachev should do. For instance, the idea of referendum of March 1991 to vote whether the Soviet Union should exist or not, that idea of a referendum highly radical and highly volatile was suggested to Gorbachev by Jim Baker and Gorbachev uh, uh, actually uh, agreed, and this referendum did take place. They were also in the uh, uh, atmosphere of liberalization and democratization that the Soviet Union was. By the way, 1990-91, many things associated with the Soviet system fell apart. There, were, there was freedom of travel, there was a lack of any uh, supervision uh, police supervision inside the country. It was a remarkably free country uh, in comparison to what was uh, there even a, a couple of years earlier. So many American non-government organizations, non-state actors at that time came to the Soviet Union and operated, sure enough, under KGB supervision, but remarkably free of any harassment, of any uh, administrative constraints. And they all promoted democracy. They all promoted market. Among them were libertarians from the Republican right and liberals from the Democratic left. Uh, 
one of the latter, uh, Michael McFall, in his recent book, nostalgically recalls his own activity as a young activist uh, on, the, on the flank of the Democratic Party when he came to Moscow for the first time. I quote him, Democrats of the world unite. That was our slogan. We collectively believed that democratic change inside Russia would bring out two societies together. Shared sense of mission was what, was uni what united us in those days. Not money, not strategic interests, ideas. Well, uh, there were, of course, among those non-government groups, American economists who advised boy, both, both Gorbachev and his uh, enemy Yeltsin about how to carry out shock therapy in Russia. And uh, privately, however, West, some Western economists, particularly those of them originating from Eastern Europe, uh, confessed that it was a highly dangerous way to proceed for the country like the Soviet Union. Uh, shock therapy for the Soviet Union, they... Uh, uh, commented among themselves, would fatally damage Soviet economy, destroy the military-industrial complex that had the best resources, the best equipment, the best cadres and economy, and most likely would rip the Soviet Union apart as common economic, financial, and political space. So I don't have time to continue with everything that the Bush administration did uh, uh, in 1990-91, but let me focus on some things uh, that I want to conclude with. I sought to argue in my talk that a broader, less deterministic, uh, less in inevitability-laden look at the Soviet collapse uh, should be practiced by historians. The enigma of rapid Soviet dissolution in peaceful times, in a record Time, uh, time frame can be only understood as the interplay between structural vulnerabilities, which, which were indeed critical. Fatal personality of Gorbachev, the unique leader of the only political force that could, could, could hold the country together, and wrong, in my view at least, policy choices. I hope this approach helps to historicize better what happened with the Soviet Union. One thing that the Soviet collapse teaches us is the price of wrong policies and wrong turns at a critical juncture. Not only the over-centralized Soviet system was vulnerable to the surges of populism and nationalism and economic discontent, you know, some other countries that, uh, today, some other uh, uh, communities demonstrate vulnerability to the same kind of wave. So the price of wrong policies or one wrong referendum can be rather steep, as we can see. The history teaches us that runaway liberalization and total collapse of state capacities, however reprehensible those state capacities are uh, in their historical record, associated, of course, with, with Stalinist past. I mean, the, the record number of skeletons of so in Soviet cardboard and innumerable uh, victims of, of Stalin's terror is well known. However, the state capacities that we inherited the, of that time were rationally dismantled without creating anything to replace them. So I would also argue that liberal teleology of movement towards de democratization and that democratization follows marketization uh, under any circumstances sooner or later, that sort of uh, end of history view, of course, should be dismissed. Other contingencies and roads were entirely possible, at least entirely imaginable, in the end game of the Soviet Union. They were actually more logical. For instance, why not relying on your nomenclatura? Why not relying on the red families when you do privatization and not giving it away to whoever is the first taker? They were, uh, Gorbachev not only rejected those logical, quote-unquote, options, he never, uh, uh, he never even considered them. That is truly remarkable. It is also possible to argue that the preservation of reformed union, and here I'm trading on a very slippery uh, uh, ground, I, I realize, with the center in Moscow, but con Moscow being checked by a federation of republics around it, not only being the, uh, the, the capital of, of the Russian Federation, but having other republics, such as, for instance, Kazakhstan, uh, 
and at some point even Ukraine was considered as part of that alliance would probably be workable and uh, could eventually produce a road towards gradual liberalization instead of sudden collapse. So I think we have enough food for thought and questions. Uh, that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.